So Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 to 16. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for that evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tashish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tashish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tashish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid, and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them, then they said to him, What shall we do for you? What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rolled hard to get back to dry land. But they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Good morning, everyone. Uh, if you're still trying to find Jonah in, uh, in your Bible, uh, a handy trick is that all of the minor prophets, those short prophetic books that haven't O in their name are all grouped together in your Old Testament. That's the, the cheap way of doing it. Uh, let's pray and let's, let's have a look at this wonderful book and this wonderful chapter in, in Jonah. Uh, gracious Father, uh, we believe you when you say that all of Scripture is your word to us and that it's useful uh, for teaching and training and reproof and correction 
to equip us for every good work. And so we ask that as we get stuck into your word this morning, that your spirit would be at work in us uh, and you would be doing what you promised to do through your word. Help us know you and help us know your son and help us know your heart for the lost. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, well, one thing that we want to be on about here at St. John's Together, I hope that you've noticed, is evangelism. Uh, we want to be telling people about the Lord Jesus. Now, if you've been keeping an eye on our vision and our values process that's gone on over the last year, as we've clarified the things that we think the Bible is telling us that we should value, uh, is telling us where we want to head as a church together, then you'll know that one of those values that we've come up with is outreach. We want to be proclaiming Jesus in Toowoomba and in the Downs and actually all through the world. That's something that we value. We are on about evangelism, about telling people the news about Jesus Christ so that they can put their trust in him. And that's a a good thing to value, I think. It's a right thing to value because sharing the good news of Jesus is actually the responsibility of every single Christian. Uh, As J.I. Packer says in his wonderful book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, uh, the very first line, he says, Always and everywhere, servants of Jesus Christ are under orders to evangelize. And so I want you to think for a moment as we start, what sort of evangelist are you? What sort of evangelist are you? Maybe you're one of those rare people who are gung-ho, highly skilled evangelists. Uh, But actually, I think people like that are pretty scarce, aren't they? I think, actually, most of us, and I'd put myself in this category, are reluctant evangelists. We're reluctant in our evangelism. And there might be a bunch of different reasons behind our reluctance. For some of us, it might be because of our temperament. You know, evangelism is hard because we're shy people. I think that, that's me. I'm a bit of an introvert. Evangelism feels frightening. I, I feel like I don't know what to say. I don't know how to steer a conversation towards talking about Jesus. Uh, for some of us, though, it might be cultural You know, the old adage is that you don't talk about religion or politics. Uh, Jesus is is not someone that you bring up in polite conversation. We're Australian. We talk about sport and the weather. Perhaps, though, maybe for you it's theological. Uh, You're not actually convinced of the need to tell people about Jesus. You know, they've got their beliefs. We have ours. Talking about our different beliefs just causes conflict. And we don't have the gift of evangelism anyway. And those people that you, know, you work with or you live next to, they wouldn't be interested in Jesus anyway. There's no way they'd darken the door of a church with you and so there's no point really in sharing the gospel with them. Could be any of those reasons, but really I think deep down the true issue for all of us, the issue behind all of those other issues is motivational. We just don't have the motivation to do evangelism. And we're busy. You know, we've got family commitments and work's really crazy at the moment. We do a bunch of extracurricular activities. 
Uh, we actually serve a heap of church, so we're kind of doing God stuff anyway. Evangelism is just kind of low on the priority list, and you know we're not that gifted at it anyway. Our problem is most often motivational. But I reckon the truth is that if any of those are the case, actually we all feel a little bit guilty about it. As a preacher, one of the easy things to make people feel guilty about is their lack of evangelism. We know that we should be making more of an effort to talk about Jesus. We know that it's not just an optional extra for Christians. It's a key part of our faith, and so we feel guilty about not doing it. And yet we feel powerless to change, and we need help. And that, I think, is what Jonah is here for. Because the big point of Jonah is that God is the evangelist. That's the big point of this little book of Jonah. God is the evangelist. Now, if you've grown up in church, you would know the story of Jonah already, wouldn't you? You've got some ideas on what Jonah's about. It's the, the classic story for kids' talks. We've already got a handful of books at home on the kids' shelves uh, that are about Jonah. It's the, the classic kids' talk. Uh, but often, that's where we leave the book of Jonah, isn't it? We leave it to the kids. Because with our you know, grown-up modern minds, uh, the book of Jonah seems a bit fishy. Thank you. Uh, we find the idea of a big fish quite hard to swallow. They're, they're going to keep coming. Uh, but really, the story of Jonah isn't about the fish. Don't get distracted by the fish. The fish is actually a red herring. Uh, the book of Jonah is really a book about God. It's about the God who is gracious and compassionate, the God who is rightly offended by sin, and yet a God who wants all people to be saved. It's about the God who is himself the great evangelist. And we can take encouragement from that, I think. If God can save a whole city like Nineveh, then he can save that person that we live next to or that we work with, that we think is beyond saving. And if he can use a weak and weird and reluctant prophet like Jonah, then he can use weak and weird and reluctant evangelists like you and me. So let's dive into chapter 1. And in chapter 1, God shows us that he is the one who is fully in control and in charge. God is sovereign. We've got three points in this chapter. Point 1, God is in charge of all nations. God is in charge of all nature. And God is in charge of salvation. So point 1, God is in charge of all nations. Keep your Bible open in front of you, verses 1 and 2. Uh, and the book of Jonah begins just like virtually every other prophetic book in the Old Testament. It begins with a phrase that occurs over a hundred times in the Old Testament. Jonah 1 verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. So in verse 1 we're introduced to our two main characters, our protagonist and our antagonist. The good guy and the bad guy. Uh, the good guy is the Lord. And when you see that word, Lord, written in capital letters in your Bible, I'm sure you know it means something specific. It's how the Bible translators translate God's personal name, Yahweh. It's the name I am. It's the name that God revealed 
to Moses from the burning bush in Exodus 3. And God's name, Yahweh, means that God is incomparable. It means there's no one else like him. It means that he's the creator, not a part of the creation. He's absolute in power and control. He's what theologians call omnipotent. And if you're an Israelite, then that name has special significance for you. It is God's covenant name. It's a reminder to you as an Israelite that God is your God. He's the one who rescued your people from oppression and slavery in Egypt. He's the one who made you and your nation his own special people, a holy nation and a kingdom of priests, a people who would be a light to the nations. It's a reminder that your job, the reason that God rescued you, is for you to be on mission to the rest of the world, to represent him to the nations. And this God, Yahweh, he's a God who exercises his power by speaking. And so his word comes to our second character, the prophet Jonah. Now, we don't get much background on Jonah here, do we? We're told that he's the son of Amittai. But that's all we get. And the only other place that he's mentioned in the Bible is 2 Kings, chapter 14, verse 25. And in 2 Kings, we're told that he's a prophet from a little town called Gath-Hefer. That's a town in Israel, the northern tribes. Uh, he's a prophet during the time that Jeroboam is the king of Israel. This is the 8th century BC. And Jeroboam was an evil king. He does what's evil in the sight of the Lord. And all of the other prophets around this time are prophesying warnings to Israel that God would judge them for their evil. But that's not the case with Jonah. Jonah comes along and he preaches that Jeroboam is going to expand the borders of Israel. He promises that God is going to bless his people through this evil king. And so that tells us, I think, that Jonah is a nationalist. He's a guy who loves his country if Jonah was an American, he'd fly an American flag and have a God bless America bumper sticker, wouldn't he? If he was Australian, he'd have a Southern Cross tattoo on his back. But as we'll see as we work through the book of Jonah, Jonah is a selfish, spiteful and foolish man. He's resentful and he's racist. He is pro-Israel, but he's anti-everyone else. And even though he's a prophet, and even though he knows what his God is like, he doesn't actually seem to like God very much. Now, Yahweh's word comes to this man, Jonah, with an unexpected message. Verse 2, he says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. It's an unexpected message because out of all of the prophets in the Old Testament, Jonah is the only one who's ever told to go outside of Israel or Judah and preach. He's the only one ever to prophesy to someone else. You see, it was understood that God was the God of Israel. And so Israel is God's turf. That's where he has dominion. That's where he has sovereignty. And Nineveh 
is definitely not in Israel. Nineveh is the capital of the Assyrian Empire, so it's about 800 kilometres northeast of Jonah's hometown. It's right where modern day Mosul is in Iraq. And God tells Jonah two things about Nineveh. The first thing he says is that Nineveh is a great city. Now, it doesn't mean it's really good. Go to Nineveh, Jonah, you'll have a whale of a time. I told you they're going to keep coming. It's not because it's a really good city. No, it's because it's big and it's important. The Assyrian Empire is the great superpower of the 8th century BC. And that makes Nineveh, its capital, one of the most significant cities in the world at that time. And yet it's not Nineveh's political or cultural significance that makes it great to God. Nineveh is great to God because it is the home to 120,000 people. 120,000 people made in God's image who are important and valuable to him. And 120,000 people who don't know him and are ignorant of the wrath that is coming on them for their sin. That's why cities and towns are important. At 120,000 people, Nineveh actually was about the same size as Toowoomba. Toowoomba is a great city to God. It's not great for all the business and the commerce that goes on here. It's not great for its history or its cultural significance. It's not great because it has wonderful parks and gardens. It's great because 135,000 people made in God's image live here. Our city is a great city to God because it's full of people who are made in his image and yet are in danger of perishing in eternal judgment. Toowoomba is a great city to God. Nineveh is a great city. But the second thing that God says about Nineveh is that it's an evil city. Uh, The Assyrian Empire, where Nineveh was the capital, is known for its idolatry and its wickedness and its depravity. It is a cruel nation, and it's a nation that actually takes pride in its cruelty. Uh, If you go to the British Museum today, you can actually see artefacts from the Assyrian Empire that show how brutal they were. Here they are impaling some Israelite uh, citizens. Their art actually celebrates how brutal they are. The next generation of Ninevites, the children of the ones that Jonah is going to preach to, are the ones who will invade Israel and brutally crush them. The prophet Nahum, who comes a generation after Noah, uh, preaches about Nineveh. He says this, Nahum chapter 3, Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey. The crack of the whip and the rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, Heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end, they stumble over the bodies. Ninevites were a savage, bloodthirsty people. But why does God care? 
You say, Yahweh, he's, he's the God of Israel, isn't he? So why does he care what the Ninevites do 800 kilometres outside of his domain? He cares because he says Nineveh's wickedness has come up before him. It comes up before him because he is sovereign over all the earth. He's not only the God who's in charge of Israel, he's the God of all nations. And so Nineveh's wickedness offends God because it's done right in front of his face. And because God is sovereign, and because God's in charge of all nations, then our sin and our wickedness is done right in front of his face as well, isn't it? Whether it's blatant disobedience to his laws, or whether it's that we simply ignore his existence, whether it's done in open view or it's done behind closed doors, all of your sin is done in the face of the sovereign God. And so the sovereign God tells his prophet Jonah to go to Nineveh and pronounce his judgment on it. But this book that starts with judgment is going to end with grace. And Jonah knows that. He knows that God's terrifying wrath is only matched by his mercy. And so just as God is sovereign over sinners everywhere and offended by sinners everywhere and his judgment is over sinners everywhere, he also offers grace to people everywhere. And he sends his people to evangelise everywhere. Jonah knows what that's got, that that's what God is like, and Jonah doesn't like that. And so he gets up and goes, as God tells him to, but he goes in exactly the opposite direction. But Jonah will quickly find out that not only is God in charge of all nations, God's in charge of all nature too. That's what we'll see in the next couple of verses, verses 3 to 10. God is in charge of all nature. Now, no doubt, this is a hard gig that God has given to Jonah. This is the modern-day equivalent, I think, of asking an American to go and stand in an American flag T-shirt in the middle of ISIS-controlled Syria and to tell them that the American God is going to judge them. This is a hard gig. And yet I don't think it's fear that motivates Jonah to run away. I think, actually... It's hatred for anyone who isn't an Israelite. And so when God tells Jonah to get up and go, he gets up and he goes, and he goes in exactly the opposite direction, as far as he can go, away from the presence of God. He goes first to Joppa, where Tel Aviv is today, and he looks for a ship headed to anywhere but Nineveh. He finds one headed for Tarshish. Now, Joppa, it's not in Israel at the time. At the sailors, they would be Gentiles. Hebrews were notorious for not liking the sea. No one here is going to hassle him about disobeying his God. And so he pays the fare, he goes aboard, and he heads out to sea. He tries to run, but very quickly Jonah finds out that you can't run from God. You can run, but you can't hide. And surely you would think, as a prophet, Jonah would know this already. Uh, he says later on in verse 9, doesn't he, that he fears the God who made the sea and the dry land. Uh, 
as a prophet, he, you know, he's a proud Israelite, he would know Psalms like Psalm 139. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. No matter where we go, there is nowhere that we can flee the presence of God. Yahweh isn't just the God of Israel. He's the God of all creation. And so you can't run away from this God, can you? It seems stupid of Jonah. But then sin is always stupid, isn't it? And Jonah's going to keep proving that he's a stupid man. He needs to learn the lesson the hard way. God has anticipated Jonah's stupidity. He knows Jonah's every move. And so he has already prepared a storm so ferocious that it threatens to break the ship apart. It is a storm so severe that these seasoned sailors are afraid for their lives. They seem to recognise that this is no ordinary storm. And so they all start to pray to their own gods. And obviously when that doesn't work, they try dumping the cargo to lighten the load. And they value their lives more than whatever it is they're carrying. And do you see how different they are to Jonah? Well, these pagan sailors are doing whatever they can to save themselves and their ship. Where's Jonah? He's gone down into the ship. And he's fast asleep. The sailors are active, but Jonah's passive. They are desperate for salvation. And the only one who knows how they can be saved is fast asleep. Is that us? Now we've got a city that is perishing, 135,000 people, friends and family and neighbours and colleagues people who are sinking under the waves of God's judgment. Are we asleep? See, we say that we know the one who can still the seas with his word, the one who is a refuge in the storm of judgment. Are you a sleeping evangelist? Jonah is a call to wake up and tell people to take refuge in Jesus. For Jonah himself, it takes the captain to shake him awake and get him to act. I call out to your God, he says, maybe he's the one who's who's able to save us. And they cast lots, like rolling dice, to figure out who's responsible for the storm. And even in something seemingly as random as rolling dice, God shows that he's the one who's in control, doesn't he? The lots confirm for the sailors what we knew and what Jonah already knew. God's anger is because of Jonah's disobedience. And so the sailors fire questions at him to get to the bottom of it. What's your job? Where are you from? What have you done that is so bad that this storm is happening to us? And Jonah's answer is a testimony of sorts. And at once it shows us both his arrogance and his stupidity. His arrogance, I'm a Hebrew. It's nationalistic pride. He's better than these dirty pagan sailors. I'm a Hebrew. But it also shows us his stupidity. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And when they hear it, the object of the sailors' fear shifts from the storm to Jonah. 
This guy thinks that by getting on a boat, he can escape the God who made the seas. They're horrified. It is horrifying being around people who are that stupid, isn't it? He says that he fears Yahweh, but every action he's taken so far in the story screams the exact opposite, doesn't it? You see, if you fear God, that leads to obedience, doesn't it? But Jonah has disobeyed God at every turn. And yet they're even more afraid because of who Jonah says he's running from. See, they believe Jonah when he says that behind this storm is Yahweh, the one who made the sea and the dry land. And they know that it's a bad idea to run from the one who's in charge of all nature. Because here, all of nature, the wind and the sea and the waves, are being used by God to bring judgment on Jonah for his disobedience. Jonah can't escape God's command and he can't escape God's wrath. But thankfully, this God who's in charge of the nations, this God who is in charge of nature, is also in charge of salvation. He's the one who can rescue from certain death and he can deliver these sailors from his wrath. That's why we've seen this last point, verses 11 to 16. God is in charge of salvation. See, Jonah knows that the way to save these sailors is to accept the blame and to sacrifice himself. God's wrath will be satisfied by the death of his prophet. There's echoes of Jesus there, isn't there? Jonah says, throw me overboard and the sea will calm down. And the sailors, they try and save themselves and Jonah. Uh, These pagans show more thoughtfulness and compassion than God's own prophet has. They row hard to get back to shore, but they can't. No one can save themselves from God's wrath. And so fearfully, they do what Jonah has told them to do. They recognise this is God's sovereign plan. God has done what he wanted. And very politely, especially for crusty pagan sailors, they call out to God for mercy. This is what you want, God. Please don't lay Jonah's blood on our account. It's a cry that's conspicuously absent from the lips of the people who killed Jesus, isn't it? But Jonah's short testimony in verse 9, it's already enough for these sailors to be convinced that Yahweh is the God that they need to trust and the God they need to turn to for mercy. And you see in verse 14, these formerly pagan sailors go from calling Yahweh Jonah's God to calling him their God. See, they start to take his name on their lips, don't they? They call him the Lord. They call him Yahweh, his covenant name. They ask for his mercy And then they pick up Jonah and they throw him into the sea and immediately the sea goes calm. Jonah's sacrifice satisfies God's wrath and we see these pagan sailors come to simple Old Testament saving faith. They've been afraid of the storm. They're exceedingly afraid of Jonah's stupidity and the danger that it placed them in. But now their fear comes to rest on Yahweh And they offer sacrifices and they make vows to follow him. See, with no help from Jonah, even in spite of Jonah, in spite of this prophet who's running away from God because he doesn't want God to save pagans, 
God has saved this crew of pagan sailors. God's used Jonah's short testimony to turn the sailors from idolatry to worship of the true and living God. And if God can use Jonah's words to save people, then he can use your words to save people too, can't he? Because God is the one who's in charge of salvation. That's why when the risen Jesus commands his disciples to proclaim the gospel and make disciples of all nations, he reassures them with his authority. He's the one who's in charge. The Lord Jesus, who offered himself to save sinners, is now in charge of all creation. And so his gospel needs to be proclaimed to all nations. Matthew 28, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord to us, isn't it? It's the word of the Lord Jesus, the one who's in charge of all nations, the one who's in charge of all creation, the one who's in charge of salvation. It's the word of Jesus to us, telling us that we are to declare his lordship to all people. This is Jesus' word to you. And if God can use Jonah's reluctant testimony on the boat to save these pagan sailors, then he can use your nervous efforts too. And so, tell people who it is you worship. Just say something. Ask someone you're chatting to this week, say to them, the preacher at church on Sunday said I had to practice my 10-second testimony uh, Can you listen to it and tell me what you think? That way you can blame me and you're just being obedient. And they'll say, sure, you can do that. If the preacher said it, I better let you do it. And you can say, I'm a Christian and I follow the Lord Jesus, who's the promised saviour king and our divine creator because he came as our king and died for our sins and rose to rule and will return to judge. And then you say, what do you think? And they go, oh, that's good. And then you can invite them to lunch and you can talk more about it and and you're off. You can invite them to read a gospel with you and they can learn more about Jesus. It's, It's not actually that hard, even as nervous as we are. And because God is sovereign, he can use that for their salvation, can't he? Tell people who it is you worship and who knows, maybe they already realise that they're drowning under God's wrath. And they're just waiting for you to throw them a life preserver. If you're not a Christian yet, then remember that every one of your sins is done before the face of God. You can't hide them. You can't sweep them under the carpet. You can't escape the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Even in the depths of the sea, he's there. His judgment for our sin is inescapable and it's worse than a mere storm at sea. But be comforted that he's provided a saviour. 
no matter how far you've run, no matter how pagan you've been, he's provided a saviour. And we'll see more of that in chapter 2 next week. But right now, let's pray. Heavenly Father, you really are the God who is in charge of everything. The one who rules all nations. The one who rules all creation. And we know that means our sin is done before you, right in front of your face. And that it deserves your wrath. But thank you that you are also the God who is in charge of salvation and that you've given a sacrifice to take your wrath in our place. Thanks that by Jesus, by his death, he's able to still the storm of your wrath and save us from certain death. So please help us to trust in his sacrifice for our rescue. And Father, if we're asleep, Rather than telling others where there's a refuge, please wake us up and give us the same compassion for the lost that we see in you so that they might be saved. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.